Welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We're on Instagram at podcastinglight. We tweet at podcastinglight. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we are talking about, okay, now what? The pandemic and the near-complete industry shutdown have led a lot of us to start thinking about what's coming next, how to prepare for it, and how to pivot if the need arises. And to talk about that, we have a panel of people who have made major pivots in their career, in some cases more than one pivot. People who were successful before their change and successful after their change. I want to welcome from Austin, Texas, Brad Schiller, who also has a book about careers in lighting that was just released a few days ago. Welcome, Brad. Hi, Jason. Thanks for being here. Joining us from Japan, we have Laura Frank. She is a screens producer when she's not traveling the world. Welcome, Laura. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. From across town, we have Marty Postma. He was a touring lighting designer who became a manufacturer's rep. Welcome, Marty. Hi. <laughs> and from beautiful San Francisco, California, we have David Leonard. He was a theater educator, then a Broadway associate lighting designer, and now he's a real estate agent. Welcome. Thanks, Jason. Good to be here. Uh, all of you, thank you so much for being here. And the disclaimer, of course, up front is none of you are here speaking on behalf of your employer, your organization, even Laura, the independent one. You're not speaking on behalf of Luminous FX, right? That is correct. This is just me today. All right. Three of you have been guests on the show already, Brad, Laura, and Marty. And the one exception would be the person who changed careers out of the industry, starting with, let's say, Brad. Now, give me an overview of your career and the course adjustments you made along the way. Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll combine the last 30 years down into as brief of a moment as I can. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, I started off working in theater, and I really wanted to just continue to work in theater. And I worked for a civic theater for many, many years when I was young. I was a technical director. I did local lighting design. And at the same time, I also freelanced with the union in Dallas. And I went out and I did lots of different shows as a stagehand, um, early programming with the good old push button controllers for IntelliBeans and things like that. Um, but then I moved on and I went back to school for a little while. And from there, school wasn't really what I wanted. So I, I left school, still also freelancing through that time. And I became a rental manager for a lighting shop uh, for towards 2000. This was out in California, out in Burbank. And I was their rental manager and still freelance programming. Did some really cool stuff with them. And then I got hired by high-end systems who I'd always wanted to work with, flew and moved back to Texas. And uh, in Texas, I was hired, or at that point, I was hired into high-end systems to be part of the lighting programming team. Back in those days, there weren't tons of programmers in the industry. So manufacturers actually hired and had their own teams of programmers that could go out and program shows for various clients. So I was part of the programming team at High-End Systems. Did that for a number of years, and my plan was to be there for five years and then move on with my freelance career. But at that five-year mark, it was right around 2001. So not only was there 9-11, which was not a good time to look for a new job, but also we had some really cool new stuff coming at High-End. We had Catalyst and we had uh, Hog3. Both of those were about to be released, and it was an exciting time. So I said, well, I'm going to stay with High-End longer. So I stayed with High End for about two more years, and then I left to go be a freelancer. And so I went off as a freelancer, uh, doing design and programming, touring, lots of stuff. And after a year and a half of that, I got a phone call from High End Systems again, and they asked me to come back and work this time as a product manager. And specifically to 
be in charge of the development of new lighting consoles, which ended up being the HOG4. And that was really enticing for me at the time to become a product manager, help design consoles specifically, but it also led to designing fixtures and all. But part of my, my contract at the time was I could still go out and freelance and program shows. And then worked at High End for many years at that second run. I uh, did a lot of things and worked on a lot of products. And then after a while, they had been purchased by Barco, became very corporate. The things changed, people changed, and I moved on to Verilite, where I was a product manager for Verilite and Showline. Did that for a couple of years, and I was very excited to be there. But again, the corporate world didn't really work out well. I, again, I want to say I was freelancing during that time also as a programmer designer. And then finally, I left there and I'm at Martin, where I am currently working as a business development manager, where I help designers and programmers understand our products and get the fixtures specified on lighting shows. And guess what? I'm also still working as a freelance designer and programmer when I can. But that's a key point I want to make is that throughout all my different pivots, there's been one essential thing that stayed the same. And that is this love of continuing to do show business and get out and being a freelance programmer and designer, as well as having these other jobs. I get it. So that's kind of my 30 years in three minutes. Thank you. Uh, David? Right out of college, I was a freelance designer and then got a job at a college uh, that was supposed to be just a really short stop on the way to Broadway. But it, it turned out to be a 20-year stop, so it wasn't as short as I'd imagined it was going to be. I stayed there and developed that department because I, I don't know if you know this, but the, the way theater departments generally work is lighting designers can add and subtract, which means they can deal with money. So they always get put in charge of a lot of departments. And that's kind of how I ended up being in charge of the department um, because I could handle budgets and things like that. So I became in charge of the department and we built it into a very large department with multiple theaters and got another new theater built for us and all kinds of great stuff. And and uh, I did that for 20 years and it was great. But, you know, I went to New York every year and that plane ride from New York, the plane ride home just started getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And I said, you know, this, you want to do something else. You want to do something different. So I decided that I would uh, give up academia and all, all of the great stuff about it. And it is fun. Um, and then I became uh, the world's oldest living lighting assistant in New York City. And I did that up until the time we hit into the uh, recession, uh, which I thought was going to be very short. So I watched every single episode of Forensics Files. And if you want to know who did it, I know. So, <laughs> But, to, well, David, to, to be fair, you weren't just assisting for anyone. No, no. I, I was working for two pretty well-known designers in uh, New York, uh, Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower, which is absolutely fabulous because it was sort of like going back to college because – those two are among the best that have ever played this game. I've seen a lot of designers work and I love uh, their work. They're kind of geniuses. And I had a great time. I learned so much from them. Um, and then uh, 2008 rolled around and I was doing a work on a huge Verilite system at uh, the Wynn Hotel. We were working on the Rev. That was sort of my, my, I was the maintenance person who kept that show kind of running and kind of, you know, changing it and doing that kind of stuff. But there wasn't really enough money to, to make a living on. So I kind of got pushed out of the business because there wasn't any, uh, there was no Broadway happening in late 2008 and most of 2009. Everything was um, pretty much off Broadway, was kind of moving on to Broadway because those were already produced and they weren't a big risk. So I went into real estate because I've always been interested in it. I was interested in it long before my move to New York. And 
So I said, you know, I'm going to do this for a little bit, but I'm not going to do it for a long time. You know, I'll, but I'll do it and, you know, find people houses and do this kind of stuff and negotiate contracts and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, that'll be cool. I, I sort of know. I know I know about negotiation. Certainly, I've, I've had to negotiate with workers unions and stuff like that. So, okay, I'll do this. And then it turned out that I really liked it. And uh, I was able to stay at home. I wasn't on the road six months, nine months a year. And I like that as well. I'm not sure if this is true of all theatrical positions, but real estate pays pretty well. And so I said, you know, when the business came back and I started getting calls to come back and play on Broadway, I decided, you know what, I've made this pivot and I'm going to, I'm going to stick, I'm, I'm going to keep with it because it was, it, it's, it's interesting. And I, I've always been an advocate of a phrase that I put together years ago. If you have the ability and the power to reinvent yourself, you will always be free. Always. You'll never be trapped. Wow. So I kind of took my own advice on that. And uh, so I'm still, I'm still in real estate. Um, and my next pivot is going to be into an RV. And I will not work anymore. That is my, that's my new pivot. And it was a strange transition out of theater. I didn't tell all my theater friends. I didn't tell them I was a real estate agent for probably a year into the time as a real estate agent because, you know, I gave up playing football. I gave up the cult and the culture of theater itself. And I discovered actually it wasn't as important as I thought it was, uh, which means it was a good choice for me. So that's my 35 years or whatever. Pressed into a couple of minutes there. Thank you. Uh, Laura, tell us. Um, well, I've managed my independent career through several pivots. Um, when I got out of school in the early 90s and made my way to New York. I was working as an electrician and uh, freelance production electrician and a freelancer for Verilite out of their New York office. Um, when I wanted to move into programming, of course, I consider that one of those pivots because you, if, if you establish yourself in one market as a freelancer, those are the calls that come first. So the trick is always how, to, how do you say no to work when you need it when you want to wait for those calls that might come a little bit closer to the gig when you want to establish yourself in a new market. So for me, focusing on moving light programming was one of those transition points where I had to make the conscious effort to tell my client base, I am moving into this new uh, career path. I can't do this very choice gig you're offering me so that I can stand by and wait for the phone to ring to offer me a less choice gig in the market I'm now interested in. So I made that transition into programming full-time um, probably in the late 90s. And that went through a series of consoles as consoles were evolving and the market was evolving. And um, I was working with light and sound design a bit and the icon uh, programming system and lighting system as both the tech and a programmer. Um, so I, I saw their move into digital lighting quite early and what they were trying to do with um, liquid displays in a moving head or putting a projector in a moving head. And what became what was talked about as Medusa became the inbox. And so um, seeing that evolve in the background, I made a break for myself one summer where I could sit down and teach myself the language of graphics. I built myself a website. I wanted to understand how to communicate about these new tools. So I took that break, started waiting for the media server market to evolve. And so in the early 2000s, when um, Catalyst uh, was purchased by various, various companies around New York, I could present myself as a, a media server programmer. 
So working on catalyst shows and then hippo shows, um, letting this market evolve, um, you know, right at the beginning as, as the whole, the whole systems were all the systems were coming online. Um, you know, I went through the downturn in 2008, uh, getting pretty regular gigs as a media server programmer, maybe half the year I could count on for being around, um, video systems, 2008, everyone stopped renting projectors and led and that pushed me right back into lighting, which was great. I had that resource to, to keep me busy. But it took a few years for um, the market to really reestablish itself and for screens to be incorporated into the scenic environments of the types of shows I was working on. And it was really around 2010, 2011 that um, screens started coming back in a big way. And then I could really full-time establish myself in this market um, programming media servers. And what I started to realize was that the communication around these tools with the content teams I was working with um, needed work and needed to be evolved. And um, so that became the focus of establishing kind of a content production workflow as this market continued to develop. So again, there was another break, <laughs> so a time where I could like really focus on developing these tools and this communication. Um, so I took, again, a couple of months off um, to think about what that would look like and learn how to be a better communication partner, not only to the content teams, but to the broadcast engineers I was working with because um, media servers were having to play a more full role in that content, in the, um, sorry, the broadcast signal flow. So coming back, I realized that as um, screens were becoming more and more part of the scenic environment, we were 30% of the visual real estate. Now we were 80 and 90% of the visual real estate. Um, the team I was managing um, was too small. It really needed me to step back and play the role I occupy now as a screens producer. So again, it was a matter of taking these clients I'd nurtured through the years and asking them to trust me and come up with the budget to now expand my team and the role and that they would see the results in a more um, relaxed and um, better communication experience for the content teams that we were partnered with. Um, and that evolved into writing my book. And then of course, in the background, saving money for me to take this time off and travel while promoting the book and thinking about what's next. And currently what it looks like um, things are, are moving for me right now in this career path are as a uh, community advocate, creator advocate, where I can sit in between user groups and both the executive producers and the manufacturers who um, make the tools that we use and be a communication partner, helping expand the way we do our work and express who we are in the community. Um, so that's what I'm looking at right now. And with that, I established um, a community platform called Framework. Can you tell us a little bit more about Framework? Framework's goal is to bring the different team departments whose final goal is to bring video to a screen in a live event environment or a virtual event environment as it is now, um, that, that we get these partners in a production learning how to communicate 
better with each other and understand the roles they play in a production so that we can advocate for each other better to our clients. Um, so one of the platforms of framework is uh, client education, uh, training our producers, executive producers and manufacturers, what, what the work is we have to achieve on site and how they can better support us in that process. We're trying to expose what's in our little magic black boxes so that they have better appreciation for the skill expertise and um, expense it takes to produce a good show for screens and for virtual production. Thank you. And Marty, speak to us. Yeah. So I got bitten by the, the theater bug pretty early as well in, in high school. It started really as a, a community summer theater project, and it was an excuse to hang out with my friends. Uh, they were all interested in performing and being in the show, which I had exactly zero interest in. So I ended up hanging out with uh, the supervisors who were in charge of the the technical aspects, the set building, the lighting, the, the scenic. And I was kind of the only kid who was interested in that. So I quickly fell into all of those roles with the, uh, the adult supervisor who was assigned to be essentially the technical director and uh, working with those, those people, the, the technical directors and, and the, the show directors, they kind of put it into my head that, you know, you could pursue this as a career if you wanted to. So um, I ended up going to, to uh, SUNY purchase, which is where Jason and I met many years ago. And, uh, got my BFA in theatrical lighting design, and then went out into the world and uh, pursued freelance work uh, in all, all aspects, designing, programming, uh, as a technician, as an electrician, uh, just getting anything I could get my hands on or sink my teeth into. I took, took advantage of those opportunities uh, early on and then found that I had a bit of an aptitude and a bit of a love for the, the programming and design more so, uh, and ended up pursuing more of that work as I expanded my network of connections and, and relationships with, with various uh, customers and clients. So um, did that for uh, roughly 20 plus years. And then uh, all of a sudden I was presented with a, a completely different opportunity about two years ago to, to come work at uh, Roby Lighting as the, the Northeast sales manager. So and managed the Northeast region, which was something I had never really considered. And that was uh, probably the largest pivot I've, I've made in the, in the span of my career arc, uh, you know, shifting from, from being more of a, a house LD into more touring work and more travel work was a, a bit of a pivot, but uh, definitely the largest one was uh, the one I made a couple of years ago to, to completely shift out of the, uh, design programming role and into the sales and manufacturing role. And it's been, it's been a great experience. I've been working with a whole new team of people, but also still maintaining all the relationships that I've built over those 20 plus years. I'm just coming from, from the other side of them now. So uh, it's been a lot of fun. I had wanted to ask about what motivated these changes, because in some cases it's, are you in the right place at the right time? And you kind of went with it, or were you presented different assignments and responsibilities, and, and then you changed your priorities based on that? Or did your priorities change, and that led you to pursue different opportunities? And it sounds like everyone has gone through some of each of these. David, it sounds like your pivot from education to working on Broadway was desire and looking for a new opportunity. But then your pivot out of that was based on necessity. 
Yeah, that's very that's very true. I was I went there because it had been a lifelong goal, and um, I left there because there just wasn't any work, and so I had to do something. And what I decided to try turned out to be pretty good. It just worked out. It worked out that well. And getting a job with uh, Jules and Peg, that was the right place at the right time. They needed an assistant, and they wanted an older assistant. Um, they wanted somebody who could deal with the room when they were not there. And um, sometimes dealing with a Broadway room as a rule is is pretty difficult because you got a lot of demands uh, put on you about things that you have to make decisions about whether we're going to change that or not when the designers aren't around and they wanted somebody could kind of stand up to that pressure. So yeah, that was the right place, right time and right age. Uh, I think, you know, most lighting design assistants are not 45, at least not when they start. <laughs> so that's how I ended up there. And Marty, you kind of had the opportunity just to sneak up on you, but it sounds like priorities wise, you were in a really good place to grab onto that when it came along. Yeah. For, for my, my current position with Roby, it certainly was, um, you know, I would say touring is a is a young guy's game, and I'm not getting any younger. So, uh, you know, as as you get older, it becomes more difficult the the rigors of that that lifestyle, uh, not only physically and mentally and emotionally, but also, uh, you know, strain on the family. I, I'm lucky enough to be married for many years now, and yeah, my wife and I have a son who's going to be 11 years old tomorrow. Actually, if you can believe that. I can't, but that's, that's happening tomorrow. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, uh, it, you know, as those changes in your personal life move along, it changes your perspective as well as to, to what's important and what do you want? Where, what do you want out of life? What kind of quality of life do you want? Uh, where, where are your priorities? Uh, and it was something I had just really only started to think about for the last a year or two before I made the change, I knew that I would have to change at some point and do something else, but I had no idea what that was going to be. Uh, and so I just happened to be ready for the opportunity when it was presented to me. Had I been presented with that same opportunity 10 years earlier, I don't know that I would have taken it. Yeah. Now, Laura, I think your case is super interesting and in that you really saw something coming ahead of the curve, like that you had a chance to see the icon M even before it was called that, and sort of see where lighting was going. But even just seeing it isn't enough to know what to do about it. So what primed you for that, and what led you to know what to do with that information once you had it? Uh, oh, those are, those are really good questions. I, You know, for me, um, I look at it a, at a couple of ways. I was always looking for parts of the market where maybe there was a role missing. I definitely consider what I did as, as making my own opportunities, but they were also selfish. They were things I was interested in. So if I'm looking at the growth of automated lighting and the move into media servers and where that market developed and what was interesting, I just went after things that I thought were cool and interesting that I was willing to devote my personal time into investigating while also building relationships and having, um, you know, clients and partners who were supportive of whatever efforts I was interested in. It, it you know, it, it took a lot of faith in my work and proving that I was responsible to that work to my clients to say, hey, I'm going to go try this now. So it's a combination of um, interest and personal effort and 
being able to promote the idea that there is a job here where one didn't exist before. And now I need someone to believe in that or me enough to say, okay, well, let's try it that way. So I, I have great partners in my career who, when I promoted a screens producer job, that they were willing to invest in that. So it's a combination of me being interested in the newest technologies that impact our industry, as well as having those partnerships where people would in, invest in giving me the, the time and, and opportunity to explore those expertise and build those roles on their shows where they weren't before. Got it. And Brad, I don't know that I remembered that you had remained a freelancer the entire time you were working for High End, Horse 2000, and Martin, and Barolite. It, it seems like you had a really consistent idea of what you wanted to do. And it just ended up almost being like, well, what bus do we need to take to get there? Would you say that's true? Somewhat. I would say for the first half of my career, I definitely had very stringent goals and hopes of what I wanted to do. So for sure, early on, even going to high end and being part of the, the programming team there and knowing that was only going to be temporary and moving on as a freelancer and designer, I always have had these big goals uh, of doing really well in the in the business of designing and, and what became programming. And that's always driven me and that's never left me. But what was the big surprise was once I got into high end, even just as the programmer in, a pro, in the programming department, the big surprise was learning how products are developed and learning that I could be a part of that and how fun it is to be a part of early testing and early suggesting and putting features and components and ideas into the whole team of what a product is and then seeing somebody use that product. Even if I'm not the one programming it, if I go see a show and go, oh, they're using that feature where the two colors flish, flick back and forth. That was my idea. I thought of that. That was a cool new design concept that I never imagined as a high school student starting out in theater that I could have an impact on products. And, and, and that drove a new uh, realm in my career that, uh, that really changed a lot. But even though I got to do that early on at high end, I still was focused on the programming and design as, as my career. And that's why I left there initially to focus on that. I think the next big surprise, like I said, was uh, when Richard Bellevue called me. I remember I was actually programming uh, Ultra, one of the very early Ultra shows way back in, before it was as big as it is now. Um, programming that, and he called me, and I was at front of house, and he said, I want you to come back to high end, and I want you to develop a new console, and I want you to be in charge of that. And that was just, wow, I never thought of that. I never thought that in my career I would have that opportunity to lead a team and develop a major product like that. And uh, it wasn't quite that simple. There was a lot more to it, of course, uh, once I got into that position. But yeah, once I found that route in the manufacturers, it was a lot of fun, for sure. How did Richard know to contact you? Well, because when I'd worked for high end for the eight years prior to that, I did a lot of input into status queue, into the LCD controllers, and even um, through Whole Hog 2 that we had purchased. And I had a lot of impact with that as well. So he knew that I had it aptitude for helping design products and an interest as well. And I had a connection with lots of other programmers and people just through my background. Plus part of the team that was already there, uh, Robbie Bruce, who was in charge of the actual software development, he had suggested me because he had worked with me when I was at high end. And, and so just, you know, high end was always a family 
part of, of the world, you know, to, to a lot of us that started off there in the early days, the days of Studio Color and Status Q and all that, we really were a family. We were really driving a lot of, in, of, a lot of what the, became standards in the industry. And uh, it was before everything became corporate and changed. So it, it was partially that too, is being a part of the family, if you will. I see. Something that's come up for the majority of your stories is relationship building and building trust. Uh, that was a major part of this. How does relationship building work? How do you build trust? And what does it have to do with changing your career? Laura? That's a tough one. I think about this a lot because um, obviously mixed reality, virtual production is a, is a big topic on people's minds um, in this pandemic environment where people are trying to figure out how to get to work. And I see all these people posting these in incredible examples of capabilities. And the people I see getting the work maybe don't have the, the newest technology or a lot of experience, but they have great relationships with producers who are going to take that leap of faith with them into this new market. And they know that the technical expertise will come in time. Um, and I think there are examples of that again and again, or maybe you see someone using the latest tool, but they're still building their, their experience or, or their expertise around this tool. But what they have is a lighting designer or a producer backing them who will give them the time and bandwidth because they've established in that relationship that this is someone who will work hard, is reliable and that they know how to communicate with. It's very hard in what we do under the pressure we're under to build that trust. Um, so I think trust comes first and expertise will follow if you're moving into a new market. Um, so for me, building that trust um, and those relationships over my years in this career path have been, you know, A, showing up, working really hard and being reliable. And my motto for that has always been, I do what I say I'm going to do. And if I can't do that or do it in the time frame I said I would do it in, I communicate that as well. Because I think in every instance, if, you know, I've promised to be able to show a file or a feature or a set of cues by 10 a.m. on Friday, if it's not ready or going to be ready at 10 a.m. Friday, I'm talking about that Thursday or Wednesday, I'm in constant communication with the people I work with. Um, so we build that trust because if I can't deliver what I said I was going to deliver, I'm going to explain why and how to deliver it on a corrected time frame or with adjusted expectations. So that's my perspective on, on building that trust. Okay. Uh, Marty, I saw you nodding along with Laura there. And I know that we were talking about you meeting with Roby back when you were on the show, and that was several years before you joined up with them. Sure. Yeah. It's it's funny how we've come full circle here. Yeah. The last time I appeared on, on the podcast here, still being a programmer and a designer, I had just gotten back from Florida having seen the new BMFL at the time. But that was just the really the tip of the iceberg as far as my, my relationship with them uh, started. But yeah, I, I think Laura hit quite a few points, communication being absolutely key and uh, you know, the most important relationship and the most important trust has to be with yourself before you can have it with anybody else. You have to be aware of your capabilities, your limitations, and know what you can and can't achieve. And then you have to be able to communicate that clearly. Um, I've worked with uh, several people 
over the years who have been labeled uh, so-called difficult to work with. But that's my experience has always been that those people get the label of that because you communicate what you're going to do, when you're going to do it. And then if that expectation isn't met, they're understandably upset. But if you take the opportunity to say, you know what, we didn't get there. Here's how we're going to get there. This is what we're doing to, to, to fix it or to move forward in some meaningful way. I've never had anybody uh, have a problem with that. Uh, you know, as long as you're, and that goes from, from programming and designing to say, Hey, you know, I'm not going to be able to write this fancy thing we talked about right now, but how about I spend a half an hour on it later uh, back in the hotel room or you know, in the morning before we have our, our next session uh, right into what I'm doing now with, okay, yeah, we have those fixtures in stock and we can deliver them at this time. And if something happens, you need to be able to communicate, you know, you know what, and this actually happened is sorry, those demo fixtures didn't arrive. The entire trailer was stolen and robbed to you. So uh, we're going to have to find some new fixtures for your demo. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to have to be a few days later. But without that 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 clear communication, that you can't you can't build any trust. Um, and that starts with with trust in yourself to be able to to meet the challenges and to uh, communicate. David, I would argue that you moved into working for the greatest living lighting designers in the business, but you had already had a full career by that time. What did you need to do to create trust and communication with them? And then I know that these are both incredibly important things when you're trying to move homes that are north of a million dollars, which I know is the average home in San Francisco these days. Correct me if I'm wrong. 1.5. So, yeah. Tell me how they're different. Tell me how they're similar. I mean, you know, do you kind of have to recreate that relationship with every person you work with, with every person you sell or, or buy? Yeah, I have a personality trait that is both adorable and also drives my husband nuts. Um, and that is, is that I, I'm, I'm really, really honest to a fault. And uh, in the in the situation of Jules and Peggy, they're both very strong personalities, and you have to call bullshit when you see bullshit, and that and that is a huge trust builder, especially with Peggy. Peggy was always uh, she used this phrase, and I really like the phrase. She said, "I want to have an associate where I don't feel like I'm crossing a rickety bridge every morning, like not knowing what's out there. I want to know that it's done, that it's done right, that you made your own decisions, and." If they're wrong, I'll call you on it, but I bet you'll fight back. And and it, and it really was it, we the the trust that I built with Peg and Jules uh, was based on. I don't think I could have done it if I was a 25 year old uh, assistant lighting designer. I don't think that that's possible. You know, you're kind of standing in front of a couple of giants, and it's I don't I just don't know if that power structure would be really doable. Um, but when you're older and have seen a lot and done a lot, I mean, I've, I've been by the time I by the time I met Peggy, I've been lighting for 30 years. You know, this was not new to me. I started lighting design before she did, so there was a sense of you know I'm an equal, although I certainly was not. I mean, I, I man, I I did not know. I thought I knew lighting design. I did not know lighting design. That it was really amazing what I what I got out of that. But it was because I, I I'm honest to a fault. I call bullshit when I see it. I win arguments a lot, and I'm a good negotiator. And those pieces built trust inside our uh, tri-relationship. 
uh, of that. And of course, it's interesting because you're working with two different designers and that, you know, which is kind of strange, just two lighting designers working on one project to me is kind of odd because I come from the theater world where it's just one and, but they work together as a team. So you're kind of, it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of relationship. And it was actually fun building trust. Uh, and it was not, it, it was, it was not simple. Um, Peggy tested me a lot. Um, to make sure that I believed what I was saying, and I did. So it was. I think that was the that was the key for me. And then, how does that extend out into what you do now? Um, yeah, I find that people who are buying houses really just they don't want you to go on about how beautiful the wainscoting is. You know, one of the things that I tell clients at the very beginning is is that. I'm here to find you a house and I'll do that. But I'm also, you're going to feel like a pee on your parade a little bit because when you go into a house, you're looking for how you're going to live in it and how that's going to work. I'm looking at it. Is this a layout problem that's going to have a resale problem later? Is this going to be affected by the construction four blocks away? What, how is that going to impact this particular property and that kind of thing? And that's what people want really out of a real estate agent is to say, you know, the stuff that I don't, I can see the windows. I can see the size of the bedrooms. I can see all of this stuff. Tell me what I can't see and really make sense of that for me. And I've discovered that right away, as soon as you as soon as you're really honest and upfront with people, man, they they cling to you. They really, they really want that. They don't want a salesperson. And I don't really feel like I sell homes. Um, although I think Colbert Bank would be very upset hearing that, but I don't think I really sell them. You either like the house or you don't like the house. You know, it's not my business to sell it. That's that's you. I take care of the things like this seller is not motivated and it's going to be very difficult to kind of get to the right place. But knowing that, as long as we all know that, we can go in and play. Um, and I, I've always, I, I've kind of found that, that everything that I learned in theater, I use in real estate. All the, all the most successful real estate agents I know have a theater background. Um, <laughs> there's something about us. I don't know what, I don't know what it is. All right. I just wanted to add one thing on David's point on calling bullshit, because I, I do believe this is a great trust builder. For me, it was giving myself permission in my late 20s to just say, I don't know, and not feel it as a sign of weakness or a, it being lacking capabilities, because I don't know was quickly followed up with, but I know how to find out and I will get you the solution. And and that as a communication point will really will really build trust because you're people can read that. And I think what David's saying is even in his work now as a real estate agent, people can read bullshit on you, even if you're not being clear that that's what you're doing. And some honesty and directness, I think pays back in spades because, um, because you, at least you're saying I'm competent. I, I don't know, but I know how to find out what I don't know. And that, that builds trust every time. Got it. Super. Yeah. And uh, Brad, you had started talking about that you had a relationship with uh, the folks at High End, you know, and that's part of the reason they brought you back. But then moving forward through your career, how did you sort of continually build and construct that so that way you could? Because I, I imagine when you're trying to develop a console, you're trying to run a whole product line. There's so many people with input, and your job is to make this one thing out of all of those thoughts. And the more time you successfully do that, the more people want you to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, developing products is, is a totally different set of relationships, but it's similar to a show because you've got teams of people that all are their experts, so they're different areas, and you just kind of have to manage all that together. But 
going going back to a minute about talking about how like Richard Bellevue called me and I said it's like a family. Um, oddly enough, if I think about it, when I've worked for high end for Verilite and for Martin, coming back to high end, going to Verilite and going to Martin, each of those times I was called by somebody who used to work at high end that came from those same relationships. So that's continued to grow for me and helped me grow on as, as they've moved into these other divisions or other departments and companies, those relationships brought more opportunities to me. Either I sought them out or they came to me and said, hey, we have this position. I remember we worked well together previously. Would you like to come over to this company? And that's been really, really uh, a key part of what I've, I've done. Um, but also I agree with what everyone said about being honest and you know, no bullshit and all that. And, and uh, having the drive though, I think is very, very important, particularly in, in our industry. I, I see a lot of people who come to me and talk to me and go, oh, I wanna get into this business. I wanna be a programmer but they just want to be a programmer like that. They don't want to put in the work to get there. They don't really have the drive and the passion. And suddenly that's going to hurt their relationships. If you have the passion, other people who will see that in you and say, wow, you've got the passion. You, you know who these people are in the industry. You've been studying. You've been looking at shows. You talk the talk. You probably can walk the walk. And they will give you a chance here or there, especially if you follow through, make calls, talk to people. All those things are very, very important to building those relationships. And then you build the trust from there. Uh, a really good example, last year I was in Denver and we were doing one of the, the Martin Road shows. And I had gotten a phone call uh, probably about three o'clock and we shut down around five. And this, this young man called me and he said he was at another event and he couldn't leave there till four. He wouldn't get to us to about 4.30, 4.45. But he really wanted to see what Martin was showing that day. But he was too busy with his college class, whatever he was doing. And he asked if we could make sure that he could be in it if he comes at 4.45. I said, yep, we'll wait for you. And he came and he asked questions about every product. He gave me his business card. He told me what he was doing. He definitely was very excited and interested in all things lighting. And he put in the time. Then he, he asked me some questions. I said, well, you can email me anytime. He emailed me afterwards. He asked questions. Ultimately, I actually hired him to create some content that we used at LDI. There's a relationship that was being built because he followed through, because he had passion, because he had interest. And, and that's the way I see everything happen in this industry. I mean, even Marty, to an extent, he used to work with us at high end as a freelancer. He would come and support a lot of things with Whole Hog. He would do demos with us. He would do trainings. And that gave him, I'm sure, a solid foundation of being with a manufacturer that he's taken on to that now. Even though he didn't work for high end necessarily, he got all that, that backing that helped. So these relationships are, are really important and um, how you grow them. But the other relationship I wanted to mention too, as you look at changing your career, is you have to look at your family relationship. If you have a spouse, if you have children, and you might think, oh, I want to make this change. I want to go freelance, or I want to be on the road, or I want to get off the road, or I want to do this. That's going to impact your family. It can impact them financially. It can impact them in your attitude. If you're there, or you're not there. So you have to put those considerations in as well and manage that relationship always is number one, because they're going to be there for you. The work relationships, I think, should come secondary to your personal relationships. That's a really good point. Um, what I'd like to know is what are the right reasons to make a change? And then what are the reasons that might leave you feeling dissatisfied with, with the change you've made? You know, when is it work on your career and when is it maybe work on yourself? 
I don't know that the two are mutually exclusive. Uh, I've never been in a position where working on yourself or working on your career was the sole focus. Uh, it's always one or the other. Generally speaking, I would say you've got to work on yourself uh, far more than your career. The career will follow. Like Brad was saying, if you don't have the passion for, for what you're doing uh, and what Laura was saying about communication, if you don't have good communication skills, it doesn't matter what industry you're in or what job you hold. If you don't, you don't have a strong foundation in yourself to begin with, you're not going to have a strong career, at least not for very long. Um, so I, I, I really see the two as, as completely intertwined uh, more than they are exclusive of one another. Okay. I think that the center of what builds the career is you. The center of what builds the family is you. The center of what kind of creates this uh, one turn around the carousel. It's all we get, just one turn. And if you're working on yourself, the career, I agree with Marty entirely, the career is going to follow. As long as you have the work ethic and the passion and you're willing to do the work, the real, the real work, um, as you know, Brad mentioned, sometimes people want something and they don't want to work. As long as you have those components, which are not things that are given to us, they're things that we create inside of ourselves uh, throughout, throughout our life from when we're very, very young. Um, working on yourself is going to be working on your career at, at some level. And part of working on yourself is learning how to balance those two things, I think. And that oftentimes they can get out of balance. And it's okay if that happens occasionally. It's okay if that happens every so often. But you can't let work idle in that top spot for very long. It needs to take a back seat and you need to be you need to be aware of it as well. And I think that's very difficult in an in an arena where we're, we're all pretty passionate about. I mean, I was never passionate about anything. I, teaching and lighting is pretty much my major passion. Um, and you know, those things can be all consuming as I'm sure everybody here on this panel has experienced. Yeah, and Jason, you asked uh, the right reason to make a change. A lot of my changes were driven because I wanted to increase my career and, and do new things. But really, I've had this, this motto that my parents instilled in me, and that is that the best kind of job you can get is one that you love doing, and the paycheck feels like a bonus. And I taught that to my own son, and he's in the same career now, <laughs> the cool career path. But I, but I think it's really important that you've got to love what you're doing, and you've got to be happy. That doesn't mean there's going to be days that you're asked to do expense reports for 22 hours or sweep a floor or or clean cables that you hate that task. Those are going to happen. But you've got to fundamentally be happy doing what you're doing. And if a new opportunity comes to you that is make you even happier, great. Jump for it. Take the chance. Even if it's risky, maybe it doesn't pay as much money. But if you're going to be happier, go for it. But if you're in a situation, and, and unfortunately, I was in two of these, uh, where the work environment isn't what you thought it was going to be. And because of certain situations that happen, you're not happy either working with the people or working with the situation or the things are not going the way you want it to go. And you've made attempts to try to make changes. At some point, you have to say, I'm not happy here. I need to move on to something else where I will be happy. Even if it means less pay or less this or that, your happiness is what's going to be most important. Because if you can go to work, whatever that is, if it's going to front a house, if it's sitting at a computer, if it's sitting in an office, if it's showing real estate, whatever you're doing, as long as you yourself love doing that, you're going to be happy in life. And that's what I strive for. So that's what I've kind of driven my changes on are 
Is this a time to make a change? Is it going to affect my happiness? Or is my happiness being affected by this current job and I need to improve that? That's kind of the way I see that. And and I think what Brad's saying gets to the heart of your question, Jason, is, is people associate change with risk and, um, and are... are concerned they'll make the wrong choice and then end up someplace where they're less happy or not making enough. And, and I look at all of the changes or career shifts we look at in this group, and, and some of them are riskier than others. Some of them are more dynamic shifts than others. Um, but ultimately, they all, I think, serve this other purpose that we, we took those risks as part of our natural personal growth. And that if it doesn't work, you move on to something else. And for me, um, that's kept me as a freelancer because, you know, I may make some very risky choices, but they're always short term. So I, I look at some of the, the choices made from people on this panel and think that, you know, those are risks I personally wouldn't want to take, but, you know, they didn't serve what I was interested in at the time. And that's not saying that the opportunity might come up or be presented to me that I would make a very similar choice. So these are very personal questions, um, very circumstance-based questions. And I think, you know, a lot of what we're saying is your personal wellness, growth, and happiness all contribute to being able to manage your personal assessment of the risk of that change. But I, for one, think it's always worth making those leaps and seeing what happens. It's hard to talk about, you know, changing careers or even the situation that we all find ourselves in now without talking about finances. What are the elements of a financial plan that will help leave you open to new opportunities and also help smooth over times like the times we're in now? I went through a very important shift at some point where I realized thinking about numbers and dollars and what was in the bank of savings was not serving me as well as understanding the translation of that savings as time. So as soon as I started thinking about my savings account as how much time I had in the bank. I could think about dry spells or um, shifts I was trying to make with a little more clarity because I could say I have a three-month runway or a six-month runway to really see this transition evolve. So my husband and I made the choice to live below our means, save as much as we could so that we could build up basically a bank of time that allowed us to have more flexibility in our choices. And maybe as we were talking about previously, take risks we may have not felt so comfortable with, with our career changes that we wanted to make. And then ultimately do what we're doing now is explore what it means to be in our careers and being uh, living a nomadic lifestyle by creating this time bank of uh, opportunity for ourselves to basically pay ourselves to have career explorations we maybe couldn't have afforded if um, you know there was only a three-month or a six-month window to support ourselves while we were making these explorations or, ch- or changes. Um, and luckily for us, what that's meant is um, because we were able to park so much time away is it's translated into pandemic survival, which I think is first and foremost on a lot of people's minds as they look, if they're freelancing, um, what, what their savings will really allow them to be able to do in this kind of crisis. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, yeah, money is time and time is money, right? It's the, the age old saying, and really any financial plan has to come down to what you're comfortable with. What do you need to feel comfortable for the future? 
Do you need to have three months? Do you need six months? Do you need a year? Do you need more? And then how do you get there? How do you attain that that goal that you set for yourself? Uh, and if you're in a long-term partnered relationship, what is your partner comfortable with as well? You have to have those discussions too. It comes back to family. Uh, you know, I could give you the the nitty gritty detail of what we've done uh, as far as financial plans uh, for my wife and I, but you know, that may not be relevant to, to someone else. Uh, they may have a different perspective or a different set of needs or want to live a different type of life. So um, really, you know, you have to, you have to make the plans based on where you are and where you want to end up, but you have to be conscious of those things. You can't just kind of throw it to the wind either because there's going to be, you know, feast and there's going to be famine as well. And we're unfortunately in, in the famine period right now. So um, I've had a lot more time to, to read recently again than I've, than I've had in, in recent years and uh, been revisiting uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations quite a bit. And, the, you know, there's the, the quote that I keep coming back to a lot of people that get busy with life's purpose toss uh, aside empty hopes, get active in your own rescue. If you care for yourself at all and do it while you can, you know, nobody's coming to save you. How are you saving yourself? Uh, and I think particularly in a, a volatile uh, work environment that is freelancing and being an independent contractor, uh, you really have to take those things into consideration. And what are you, what are you comfortable with uh, as far as absorbing risk? Yeah, and, and I think um, Laura said it well, too, something I was going to say, which is live below your means. You know, I think I've always lived that way, and I think it's very important not to go overspending. Some people, I th now it's a little different because people have realized where we're at uh, in this current world, but a lot of times people go on tour or get a gig and say, wow, I got all this money. Look at this. This is happening. I'm on tour for the next two years. This is solid. And then they go out and buy the Tesla or they buy the big TV or whatever it is they buy, yet they can't really afford that. And you do have to think a little bit about savings, of course, as a freelancer or even as a non-freelancer, because anybody can be laid off anytime from any company. So you, you have to have a, some money in the bank and have some plan, I think, to, uh, to handle the, the uncertainty of life. And beyond that, I think having some sort of savings plan for retirement, there will be a time when you don't want to work every day. Yes, we might all get to be 80, 90 years old and do a show or two a year, but it's not going to be to the same pull that you're doing maybe when you're 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. So you want to think about a plan for that. You want to maybe have your house paid off by that age or that time. So you're not having to, to be 80 years old and work 20 shows a year. Maybe you only want to work four shows a year. So I think talking to a financial advisor and having some sort of plan for a far off future as well as the plan for the near-term dry spell. Um, today's current uncertainty of, of the pandemic and seeing the whole industry pause, no one could have ever predicted this and known this would happen. So it's hard to say what to do to plan for where we are today, uh, except you just do your best, the best you can. Uh, but overall, yeah, I think a good financial plan is to live below your means and uh, enjoy your life. Don't just sit under a rock, but do put away some money for the future and for the hard times. I like what Brad said. I mean, people shouldn't beat themselves up about uh, finding themselves in a little bit of trouble right now. It's, th this is not the kind of thing that we would ever have thought would happen. So 
Um, and probably, God willing, won't happen again for another hundred years. Um, and I'm a big advocate of living beneath your means. And I have a number. I live 10% to 20% below my means. So when I'm buying real estate, I look at what that payment is going to be and say, well, I can afford that. I qualify for that. The bank would allow me to have that. But I'm going to take about 20% off of that. And that's the house I'm going to buy. And I actually work the equation backwards. I go from the payment to the purchase price of the house. And as you might imagine, I, I buy real estate. So that's that's my longer term thing. And I totally agree with uh, Brad about the difficulty is I'm going to come back to freedom again um, uh, in life. You know, the ability to reinvent yourself is the ultimate stroke of freedom in anyone's life. Same is true. Paid off house. Uh, paid off house when you retire is super, super important. doesn't matter kind of where it is. Um, and in fact, I know a lot of people in the theater industry in San Francisco. Guess how many of them buy houses from me? Zero. They cannot afford it. They cannot afford a house in San Francisco. You have to work for Google if you're buying a house. But I, I had this former student. He's, for, he's 45 now, which ages me a little bit. But he's 45. He doesn't own a house. And I keep telling him, here's the deal. All you have to do is own a house. It doesn't have to be the house you live in. If you can only afford a house in, say, Lodi, which is less expensive than San Francisco by a lot, buy a house in Lodi and rent it out. And then you will continue to accrue money in your savings account. You will be giving yourself a raise of roughly $30,000, $40,000 a year by doing that. And so, yeah, you want a house, you don't live in it. But you have to kind of have a financial plan that kind of puts that What's that kind of all together and living beneath your means and investing in stuff that's re- that's really kind of solid. Um, I don't and I don't know anything about stocks or any of that stuff. I'm a complete dope. So I, you know, all the reason I put all my money in real estate, I don't know anything else. I'm an idiot. So that's why I do it. But that is certainly um, certainly a smart financial thing to do, and it allows you freedom to kind of go do what you want to do as you accrue value in real estate. Uh, I often saw you saying on social media, don't let the purchase price of real estate shock you. Don't let it chase you away. There are ways, there are means, there are programs, there are things that can help you to make that happen. Can you go into any of that? So we're not going to talk about right now because right now is kind of a weird, it's kind of weird right now. (laughs) What I have consistently told people is, you know, and I get this all the time, we're going to save up some more money for a down payment. Really? I don't think you can save up money as fast as the houses are going up in value. I don't think you can save up that fast. You're behind the curve and you're always going to be behind the curve. You're just going to be further behind it if you do that. Look, if somebody is willing to loan you money at 3%, and I tell this to all the kids, and they're, everybody's a kid to me now, basically, so that's the way that works. Let them. They're going to loan you money at 3%. Let them do that. That is phenomenal. The amount of leverage that you can get, as long as you can make the payment and do all that kind of stuff, obviously, is going to get you into a much better place. This opportunity, uh, you know, my first house was 11%, 11% interest rate. It's now at three. Wow. It's actually a little below three. It's actually 2.86. So let people do that if they're willing to do that. My feeling is, is that you need to get, if they're willing to loan you money that cheaply, you you need to take advantage of that. That's a bunch of rich people with a whole bunch of money have no place to put it. When do we ever get to take advantage of rich people? Never. This is one of those opportunities. And this and also what we're finding is is that 
the FHA is still real strong. You can do 3% downs in most places. You can do 10% downs and 5% downs. Just get in. Get on that treadmill. Like I said, don't have to live in it. Well, for an FHA loan, you do. But otherwise, you don't have to live in it. If it's a, it's a, if it's a crappy place in a town you don't want to live, who cares? Buy it anyway. Right? Somebody's got to live there. You know, they've, they've got businesses there. They need a place to live. So buy them a place to live, rent it out to them, and then become um, a little more self, self-sufficient self as you get older. I think the key there is to have a plan, a plan that you believe in that's solid, and to look at it and manage it throughout your career. If you just say, oh, I got this account over here, and I'm going to put $20 in it a month and never look back at it, maybe you need to look at it over time. See what the interest rate is. Maybe think about putting more money into it. You know, as you start to earn more money, now make that $40 a month going into it. You need to manage that. And it's a, it's a lifetime thing to work on. I've always had a financial advisor because my accountant in my 20s insisted on it. But it was uh, a gentleman my husband and I sat down with in Vermont who worked for one of the big banks who said, along with your retirement savings plan, we also need to be building a, uh, a like a carrot fund. You know, saving is, is not fun. Um, so we need some motive incentive. So while we're building your retirement, we're also going to be building, you know, what do you want? Like the, the vacation home, a boat. And Dan and I looked at each other and looked at the advisor and said, we want to travel for a year. So, you know, 12 years ago, that was the beginning of the fund that supports that's separate from our retirement that supports Dan and I while we're traveling because someone, a financial advisor encouraged us to start thinking about, not only saving for retirement, but also for fun. So I'm the exact opposite of David. We own no real estate. We threw everything into you know other savings instruments and, and that's the way we live now. So everyone who went out and bought that second or third home and built an Airbnb, we thank you. That's what we live in now. And, and one other thing that, that Laura touched on there too is uh, besides financial advisors, a good accountant, an accountant that understands some form of entertainment business. It was really important to find someone like that who can help you with your taxes that, because it can get very complicated. If you have many 1099s or you create your own corporation or S corporation or LLC and you create all these different things, now you have to follow the rules. Taxes change every year and it gets more complicated as you go through life uh, to file your own taxes. Maybe when you're young and you're just doing one gig, it's easy, but as you get older and you have more things going on, an accountant is a very good source to help you manage all that and help you properly and legally handle your taxes. And finding one, again, who's, who's already in the entertainment industry, you know, someone who helps actors and, or singers or bands or talk to other people you know in your same city. That's how I found the accountant I work with was through someone else who works lighting here in Austin. And I've used him for 20, 30 years now. And I've referred him to many other people as well in the same industry. So that's another key for helping financially. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I've found that the the accountant that we've used for many years, she more than pays for herself every year uh, with the advice that she's able to give us as far as uh, proper expenses and proper reporting of income. And, you know, it gets extra complicated here in New York as well with all the, the city and, and local taxes and state taxes and things. So, yeah, you need somebody who knows knows the the rules and the regulations for your area and can work for you as an advocate. So you don't have to learn all that stuff yourself. When you get a good one, hold on to them. I, I have to file in, I have to file in three different States. 
I could never do that. That would just drive me insane. So uh, finding a really good tax person is really, really important. Even if you're a kid, you need to start building a relationship with one. As long as we're on this topic, I will say, you know, protecting your asset, you're, we're talking about building up savings, building up assets. So you have freedom and flexibility to make the choices and changes we're talking about. Um, on that topic, I want to say if you're freelancing, um, the other things you, you need to consider are um, general liability insurance. If you're working as a subcontractor or hiring subcontractors, you want to make sure we're a very handshake-based business. But when I set up my LLC, I then also had my attorney help me write a work-for-hire agreement that all my subcontractors sign. When I, you know, where I outline what I'm paying them, that I expect them to be responsible for their own general liability and workers' comp insurance. And then the other way, many clients who I would also work for on just a handshake or an email or phone agreement, if they didn't have something for me to sign, I would reverse my contract and send it to them as a deal memo. Um, I just started making sure everything was clear, outlined on paper. So any discussions about overtime, um, you know, if I was working 1099 or, you know, all that was outlined and clear because I think that is also just good financial health and practice for protecting your assets that you're building. Absolutely. So right now, a lot of people are trying to figure out what to do. And a lot of people are trying to figure out how to pivot. Based on the things we've just talked about, what are some actions people can be taking right now to try and move forward? I think first and foremost is obviously brush up on your skills, but don't just sit. It can be very paralyzing. And, and I'm sure we've all had those moments. I know I had them. I know other people have had them where you are just paralyzed by this. It's, it's unfounded what's going on. So yes, you'll have moments of paralyzation, but try to get out of that. Don't just sit, work on yourself and look for new emerging opportunities. That's going to be the really key thing and jump at any and anything you can, you can jump at. Um, I am seeing work come back. I know lots of people who are working. I know lots of people who are out of work, but there are slowly, surely, we are coming back in this industry. Some of them are doing the same thing, but a lot of people are doing different things, but related to our industry. And one of the biggest things right now is the, the whole XR studios. Those are a big deal right now. Every lighting shop has built their own XR studio. Um, you can find them in every city across the country. And while yes, there's people who work in those studios, there's also people who have the skills as lighting technicians, programmers, designers who can bring the, their talents into these XR studios. And the key there, I think, is you've got to let people know who you are and that you are available. The days of waiting for someone to call you and say, hey, we got another gig for you. You want to go out on this tour or you want to go do this? You can't count on that. You need to be completely active and call people, call shops, call studios, find out who they are and say, this is me. I'm around, I'm available, I'm in your town, I can help. And then see what they have for you. Maybe they have for you to come in and sweep the floors. Well, that gets you in the door. Then from there, you can move up. And I share this advice with a lot of people. Not everyone's going to follow it. But I can guarantee you, if, if you work hard and you try these ideas and you let people know who you are and you let enough people know, eventually you will find a gig. And I've seen that and I've seen people who are working and those things are happening. So I, I think right now, to pivot from doing nothing, you've got to try your hardest to find the work, get out there and look for it, and try to show what you can do for various types of things, and see where work is happening. 
because like I said, the XR studios are huge right now. If you are able to build content, build content, any of those things. And the last thing I want to say is don't forget to do what you need to do to survive right now. That might mean that you have to go work at Chick-fil-A or McDonald's for a little while. And that's not easy, but you might have to go do that if you're not getting your unemployment. You do it right now to survive, especially if you have a family that's got to come first. But continue to look and find those other gigs. They are out there. Yeah, you've got to get active in your own rescue and do it while you can, right? Yeah, so that means taking whatever opportunities you can find uh, and go after them. You've got to have three plans, I think. Uh, there's no cookie cutter template that's going to work for everyone and everybody. And everybody's going to have different thresholds as to how long can you uh, hold out and wait for the work that you want to come to come around or, you know, do you need to do something more immediate right now? And is that only temporary? But uh, uh, something I always used to, to teach new and upcoming programmers uh, about busking was you always had to have the rule of three when you're doing something, only build three step queue stacks. Cause then you're only one button press away from any other queue, you know, build a cool, a warm and a medium set of colors, build slow, medium, and fast chases. Uh, always have only three choices, limit yourself to three, and then move on to something else, build another set of three so you can always get at things quickly. So you also have to have three plans. You have to have a short range plan. What happens if I'm not going to get any of the work I want to be doing in this industry for the short term? And what does short term mean for you? Is short term two months, six months? You got to have a medium range plan. What happens if work isn't coming back for for a while, which is kind of where we are right now. Six months, I think, is probably more medium range. And then what What if work doesn't come back for a while? What's your long-term plan? Or what if you're never in a position, and this is something people really don't want to consider right now, but it's something you kind of have to be honest with yourself at some point. What happens if it never comes back in a way that I want to engage with it again, that it's going to be so long and I'm going to have to hold out uh for such a long time and do something else for so long, at what point do I just go a completely different direction and just exit and take, take a new road? Uh, what is that threshold for you? And really figure out what those three, three plans are going to be. And, you know, when, when you hit a certain point, be ready, be ready to go. At least you have a, a framework, if you will, or <laughs> for how to move forward, uh, depending upon what happens as the situation continues to change. But yeah, you know, it's been very, very hopeful. I agree with Brad that we've seen a lot more activity in the last few weeks, and I think we're going to see see more and more. So we're we're definitely going to come out of this, and we will be back, uh, and things things will go forward again. It's going to look a little different for a little while, but that's okay. I'll add to uh, especially this this gold rush that's happening in the XR studios, mixed reality, and virtual production markets. If you feel intimidated about taking these steps to learn the tools involved, just know everyone feels intimidated. This is, this is complex technology and the learning curve may feel steep, but the time to do it is now because we're all learning this together. And even the people who are out there producing shows that are on television had to go through the, you know, the heartache of trying to build these, these effects and seeing them fail before they started working. So if you feel intimidated, you're with a lot of really smart, skilled people who also feel intimidated about making these changes. And it's worth trying. If you're a lighting designer and you're like 
feeling like I'm not, I'm not going to sit down and learn Unity or Unreal. I'm, I want to do lighting design. You know more about lighting design than the people who are building these environments and Unreal and Unity. You have value as a consultant, as a, you know, someone who can explain the rules and, and art of lighting design to people working in these digital tools. So there's a place for you in this evolution of production. So I, I say that's also true of scenic design. What, you, what scenic designers are taught about space and an audience experience of space, the, these are skills people who build in these digital environments don't have. So yes, you should participate. You should find a way to participate. Um, I, I'm very excited about these tools, but everyone's going through this learning curve now together. And so the opportunities are there. Um, otherwise, this, if you've been thinking about another career path, it, it's maybe time to, to think about that as well. Um, I'm personally concerned that there's a lot of highly skilled people who will exit and, and not come back through this. Um, but I, I hope it's on to, to things that they really enjoy. And I think David's story is a great example of that. When the time came to return, he was happy where he was. And I know a lot of people are going to go through that as well. So just, just see that as, as, part of your life story. And, and there are good experiences out of that too. I had to Google what XR studio was. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. So great. Now I got something that I have to read for the rest of the evening. Um, I, and Laura's right. My, my example was that the 2008 recession bumped me out of the lighting profession and happily so. After 40-something years, it was time. I always uh, told my students, uh, because they were all theater geeks, you know, that, that they were 19, 20, 21 years old, and they were solidly into theater for the rest of their natural lives, they thought. And so always keep, always keep an open mind. It, pursue everything that you're interested in a little bit, just a little bit, because if it's really something for you, you'll, you'll pursue it more and... Keeping one's mind open allows you, as I said, to be able to reinvent yourself a limitless number of times. And uh, uh, and I think Brad said it best, don't you be hanging out watching forensics files. You need to be keeping active, either getting more skills than where you were or looking at translatable skills to other industries or looking at, a, looking at completely different things. A vacation is similar to unemployed, but it's not identical. It's important to remember. I would like to ask what all of you make of distance learning in live entertainment and in theater. What really can be taught remotely? A lot of people have just gone back to school, and I'd like to know what your thoughts are about the education they're actually getting. Sure. I think uh, we learn by repetition. So if there's no opportunity to put the skills into practice, you know, how useful is it really going to be? If you're learning a new hardware platform, do you have access to that hardware platform to practice it after the class and keep using it and keep building those, uh, building your skills that you've only started to learn? Or if it's software, do you have access to the software? Can you keep using it uh, and, and building upon what you've learned? If you, if you don't uh, have that after tactility, if you will, uh, from the class, then the skills will atrophy like any other skill. If you don't practice it, you're going to lose it. So I think it really depends on what you have, what resources you have available to you 
as to how much good that's really going to do you in the long run. Now, it's also okay to just take things to be exposed to them and see if it's something you want to pursue further as well. Now's the time to, to dip your fingers into areas that you might not otherwise have, have gotten into and see what else is out there and what else you can use. Uh, it doesn't even have to be in this industry. Uh, so I, you know, that you have to decide what you want to get out of it is, do I want to take this class so I can learn this thing and be perfect at it? Well, great. Then you need to have the ability to practice it and build those skills afterwards. If you're just looking for exposure to something new to see if it's something you want to pursue further, that's okay too. But really you have to decide what you want out of it in the end. Obviously, you know, if we're talking about lighting, uh, whether it's theater or concert or whatever, you can't really teach the, as Marty said, the hardware of it. You can't teach, look at the light levels. What is this really going to look like? Unless you're talking television lighting, then I guess you could somewhat <laughs> with the broadcast of you know, through Zoom or whatever, but even that's not the same. Um, but I think it, the new ways do have to be found. And I think the educators have to figure out how to make it work uh, because it's going to continue to develop and change. And, and the classes will come back and the students will be back there. For a student, I think it's all about practicing and learning whatever they can remotely. So if that's the, the free software packages, you know, you can get Disguise and Hippo for free to use on your computer. You can get any of the lighting consoles to use for free and you can get all the visualizers. And you can sit there and program for days and create new shows and, and design a rig and kind of get an idea what it's gonna look like. And you can be judged on that. But you have to remember that it's not real world and it's not the real lighting levels and the real hanging positions and, and all that. And that's the hard part, stepping back and going, okay, I'm playing a video game now. I'm not playing the real life and realize that it's going to be different when you get to real life. But I think there are some skills that lend themselves to lots of practice. For example, uh, playing back, uh, busking a show, that needs a lot of practice. And you can practice that at home using your keyboard or whatever. It's not exactly the same if you had a console, but you could practice. As far as paying for an education um, from an institution and hoping you're getting the same thing as if you were there mounting a show, I think you're gonna really lack and miss a lot of the teamwork uh, that goes into it and working with others. And again, the reality of what's the light really look like on the set at this angle and the sets over there, I think that's gonna be very difficult, but hopefully we'll get back to uh, the real world soon. So what I'd like to see, I guess, as my answer is that the educators transition their program into something that fits now, as opposed to trying to make it work as if we were still in the theater or in the space. That makes sense. I really love what Brad said about collaboration and teamwork, because that that's the thing. You can train yourself on a lot of technology on your own, but um, what we do is a collaborative art. And, and that's the thing that I, you, you can't, you can't reach with distance learning well. And I think the iteration of doing shows and having someone over your shoulder making demands um, that art of your own creation is, is critical to learning and developing your knowledge base. Is there anything else anyone wants to talk about? Is there any other advice or thoughts anybody has? I, I do want to want to put in a little word for my book that was just released. Uh, it's called Living the Lighting Life, A Guide to a Career in Entertainment Lighting. And it actually ties in a lot of what the subjects are we've spoke about here today, from what are all the different positions you could have to uh, how to set up your own company or work for the union or work for a house, to how to do uh, work-life balance, how to pay your taxes, how to save for retirement. I mean, it goes through all these topics, how to travel, 
lots of different information in there. There's a profile of my career. There's also eight other really wonderful industry experts that I've profiled their careers. And I'm just really excited to get it out there because this is a lot of information that's not taught in the schools, unfortunately, and that people really need to know about. So this book has just been released. It's on Amazon. Again, it's called Living the Lighting Life, A Guide to a Career in Entertainment Lighting. And yes, it was just released and everyone should pick it up, right? Yes. Congratulations, Brad. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Any other thoughts? I'm glad you, you put this together. This has been a lot of fun. And I think it's a lot of good information for everyone out there. And hopefully it'll inspire others in their careers to push forward, to pivot when they need to, and to have a good time. And Dave, any parting thoughts? Yeah, the, this was actually really wonderful. And, and if anybody wants to pivot on something, I will pay top dollar for anybody who can make sense out of uh, running all your lights at home off of Alexa, making an interface that people can really use. I want a whole hog for my house. That's what I want. Can you imagine when I run a routine and it, it turns on all the lights in the beginning of the day before I get up before dawn, it turns them on in any order they want to. It doesn't, I can't tell it what order to turn the lights on. It's like, this is insane. It's crazy. Why is this like this? That's what I want done. Anybody thinking of pivoting that's listening to this podcast, pivot to residential lighting control. It's driving me insane. Uh, Laura, do you have any uh, parting shots? Um, no, I think I'm good. Thank you. All right. And Marty? Yeah, I think we covered it, covered it all pretty well. Thanks again for, for bringing the group together and, uh, and, and hosting us all for this. All right. Thank you all so, so much. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.